We are Grace Church, and we belong to the Caris Fellowship of Churches. And you may or may not know this, but the fellowship is broken up into regions. We're part of the Northeast region. Also, within every region, there are districts. We are part of the Chesapeake District. Now, why am I sharing this with you right now? Well, I'm sharing this with you. For the last 20 years, I've been a part of the Chesapeake District, and I have been blessed because I've had the opportunity to meet a number of godly men and women. And we do many things together. We're better together. We have an incredible district of 10, 11 churches, and we do things together. Matter of fact, in a week or so, the pastors will meet and we'll have a time of prayer and great fellowship. When I was setting the pulpit schedule, and of course, you know, our elders will do the bulk of the preaching, I wanted to bring some of the men who I really admire here to preach. I hope you enjoyed uh, Pastor Jack last Sunday. Uh, Jack is one of those guys. Uh, and this Sunday, uh, we have Pastor Tony Papadakis. And um, easier to say Tony, uh, but Tony is just uh, an incredible uh, man of God. Uh, he uh, was the associate pastor for many years down at the uh, Grace Chapel. And one thing you're going to realize about Tony he loves the word of God. Uh, look, at his, look at his background for a moment. Let me share this with you. He received his bachelor's degree in philosophy and religion from James Madison University and his master's from Reformed Theological Seminary. And right now, he's currently at Lancaster Bible College pursuing his PhD in biblical studies. The man loves the word of God. He's extremely busy, yet he's taking some time out to share the word of God with us. Tony, thank you. I appreciate you, brother. Come up and share. Thank you, Dennis. So, Dennis, thank you for inviting me. Um, going back to the announcements, who scheduled the National Day of Prayer on Cinco de Mayo? <laughs> you just can't make this stuff up, can you? Well, again, thank you for inviting me. Thank you for having me here today. If you would, please turn in your Bibles to Job chapter 1, the book of Job chapter 1. If you go to the middle of your Bible, you'll find the book of Psalms. It's a book just to the left of that. If you're using the Pew Bible, you will find it on page 417. While you're turning, okay, one time I was preaching and I brought this water bottle up with me, and after the service, someone said, why are you drinking out of a ketchup bottle? <laughs> Not a ketchup bottle. Okay, just... I know someone's going to say it. This sermon is what I learned about suffering, some of what I learned about suffering when my wife Lori was diagnosed with cancer a few years back. It is not an exhaustive treatment of the subject, but it's more or less the bent and drift of what I've learned. Look, the book of Job is sort of the go-to book when you're dealing with suffering. It's the story of a man who suffered greatly, and he struggled to make sense of it. He, he struggled to make sense of the tragedies that came into his life suddenly, and he wondered how God, who had been so good to him, could bring such suffering into his life. And I believe that every Christian, when they experience suffering, sort of gravitates over to the book of Job. They gravitate to see what it has to say. Where is God in my suffering, and why did God allow this to happen to me or to someone that I love. Now, what we're going to do, okay, someone pointed out, I have a mistake on this slide. I said Job 1 through 50. Actually, Job only has 42 chapters. 
can't work off memory too much, especially as you get older, so I'm just going to point that out. I'm wasting my money on my PhD, I know. <laughs> We're going to cover 42 chapters in 35 minutes. Piece of cake. Going to go through the whole book. Okay, so strap in. Here we go. Before we get going, let me just open us in a word of prayer. Father God, as we approach your word, we are not approaching just any word. We are approaching your holy word, the word that divides bone and marrow, the word that transforms, the word that so many of your people have suffered and died that we may have it in our hands. And so, Father, may we approach this reverentially, knowing, Lord, that this is not just any word. And as we study this, Lord, may we know you, may we love you, and may we see you clearly, that we may follow you and obey you. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, you're in Job 1? Let's do it. 42 chapters, 35 minutes. We can do it. I'm reading out of the New American Standard. I believe a few Bibles here are ESV, close enough. If you want a real Bible, by the way, it's NAS, okay? All right. Verse 1, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. The writer is letting us know right up front that Job is serious about God. This is not a a one-day-a-week believer. He is serious about God. Verse 2, and seven sons and three daughters were born to him. His possessions also were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, and that man was the greatest of all the men of the east. God has blessed Job abundantly. This man is fantastically wealthy by the standards of his day. You want to talk about the 1%? This would be like the 0.01% of guys. Verse 4, And his sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. Now, we miss this. We are not a patriarchal society, so we miss what the author is saying here. This is a patriarchal society, and the idea that the family would try and do something without inviting the father would have been horribly disrespectful. What the author is letting us know is not all is well in Job's family. His children do not love him. They do not respect him by going off and holding these feasts without their father. Absolutely nobody would have thought twice if Job had gone and straightened those kids out, if you know what I mean. Parents, you know what this one means, right? Nobody would have thought twice about it. What does he do? Verse 5. And it came about when the days of feasting had completed their cycle that Job would send and consecrate them, rising up early in the morning and offering burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, Perhaps my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continuously. Job is a humble man. He's humble. He doesn't go and straighten his kids out. His great wealth has not given him an attitude. He does not demand respect. He does not assert his rights as a patriarch. Instead, he prays for his children. And it's that last little phrase, thus Job did continuously. This wasn't a one-time thing. This was a habit of his heart. This is what he always did for his children. He is long-suffering with his wayward children. All right, what's about to happen If you know about the story of the book of Job, Job is about to go through two crises back to back. We need to see what goes on here because this is the the backstage. This is the set of what will happen with Job. Verse 6. Now there was a day 
when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, from roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. From roaming around the earth and walking about on it? Guys, is that an Eddie Haskell answer or what? Okay, uh, kids, you don't know who Eddie Haskell is? YouTube it, okay? <laughs> but this is an Eddie Haskell answer. Oh, I'm just roaming around the earth. Anybody like this answer? No way. <laughs> no way. <clears throat> Verse 8. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Note, God turns Satan's attention to Job. It is God who, who fingers Job. Verse 9. Then Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But put forth your hand now and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. In other words, God, Job only worships you because you have blessed him fantastically. That's the only reason why. You pull all those blessings away, let's see what happens then. Fair? Is it fair? Absolutely. Now, I'm going to summarize verses... Oh, I'm sorry, uh, uh, verse 12. Then the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power, only do not put your for hand... Blech. Do not put forth your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. In other words, Satan, you can take all of his blessings away. That's okay, but you can't touch him personally. Now, in verses 13 through 19, that's exactly what Satan is going to do. He is going to have... Job is going to have a series of calamities. All of his children will die. Almost all of his servants will die. And all of his livestock is gone. Every blessing in his life is wiped out in a single day. How does Job respond? Verse 20, Then Job arose and tore his robe, a sign of deep distress, and shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. Job recognizes that God gave him everything, and God is free to take it all away. He doesn't blame God. He never says, how dare you? He never shakes his fist at God. He worships God. He never says, God, that was mine. Never once says it. That's the first crisis. Chapter 2, verse 1, begins the second crisis. And again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Then Satan, channeling Eddie Haskell, I guess, answered and said, from roaming about on the earth and walking about on it. Verse 3, and the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. And he still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to ruin him without cause. And Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin. Yes, all that a man has, he will give for his life. However, put forth, his, put forth your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. In other words, you can take away a man's blessings, right? But if he still has his health, he can still worship you. But you take health away, and it becomes a different story. And let me tell you, for a lot of folks, that's exactly what happens. When you get sick, truly sick, all your wealth means nothing. Only thing that matters is your health. Verse 6, so the Lord said to Satan, behold, he is in your power, only spare his life. Can't kill him, but
But after that, you're free to go. Verse 7, then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and... Okay, I have smote Job. I don't know what ESV has, but I love the word smote. And smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. Anybody ever had boils before? These things are painful. They are painful. And if he's got them all over his body, there is no such thing as a comfortable position. You can't lay down. You can't sit down. There's just no comfortable position at all. It's always painful. Verse 8, and he took a potsherd to scrape himself while he was sitting among the ashes. How painful is this? In other words, he's taking a piece of broken pottery and the boils that are on his skin, he's scraping to pop them open. And then what he would do is he would take ash that he was sitting in and drop it into what he's popped open. And the goal was to dry out the boils. How much pain do you have to be in to do this to yourself? Verse 9, Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold hold fast to your integrity? Where am I? Uh, Curse God and die. Okay, um, in the first crisis, Satan took away all of the blessings that God had given to Job, but he left his wife. (laughs) There's nothing to see here, folks. We're just going to keep moving right along. (laughs) But my question is this. Why is Job scraping himself? Why is his wife not helping him? Why is his wife not helping him? Look, I appreciate with the loss of the children, she's grieving too, but so's Job. So's Job. And what the author is telling us here is not only did Job's children not respect him, his wife did not respect him. His wife probably didn't even love him. And that's what's going on here. And curse God and die? I truly have no idea what that means, but I'm sure it's not good. Verse 10, but he said to her, Job said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. You know what? Chapter 2, verse 10 is probably the theme of the entire book. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? This is a crucial point. All right, beginning after this, Job has three friends who come and visit him to comfort him, to share with him. And we'll find out later on it's actually four friends who come. They aren't much comfort, but hey, at least they will show up. We'll find out later in the book that Job also had extended family. None of them showed up. All of them were fair-weather friends. They liked Job so long as he was rich, but when adversity came, they were gone. Again, they didn't truly love Job. And from chapter 3 all the way through to the end of chapter 37, Job and his friends are going to go back and forth. His friends are looking at his situation, and what they're saying is, Job, you've done something wrong. You have sinned against God. That is why God is punishing you. I mean, when we look at the extraordinary events that happened to Job in rapid succession, it's an easy conclusion to come to, isn't it? And Job is saying, wait a minute, I didn't change how I lived. I never changed how I lived. All those things that I was doing and God was blessing me, I never stopped doing those things. I continued doing them. So no, there's no big secret sin here. I'm simply, I'm a victim here. I don't know what happened. And through it all, they're going back and forth. His friends are saying that God is a good God. He's merciful. He's just. Job, if you'll simply repent, God will restore you. God will relent. And Job is saying, no, I didn't do it. There's no great sin here. There's no big sin, no secret sin at all. 
And I got to tell you, as I was reading through the speeches of these uh, three, four friends, there was a lot there I looked at and I said, I really agree with this. There was a lot to agree with, and yet they're wrong. Job maintains his innocence, and what Job desires is to plead his case to God. What he's saying is, this isn't fair. He's saying, I'll take the adversity from God, but he's saying, it's not fair. He says, I'm do I was doing everything right. He will accept adversity from God, but he thinks that it's unfair. Ultimately, Job and his friends are working off the exact same assumption. And the assumption is this, that it is wrong for God to bring suffering into someone's life without just cause. That is their assumption, and it is a common assumption amongst Americans. You hear it all the time, don't you? Why did God do this to me? Why did God cause this to happen? The entire book of Job is addressing this assumption, that it is wrong for God to bring suffering into someone's life without just cause. People often think that the book of Job is a book about suffering. It's really not. Suffering is the backdrop of this drama, but it's just the backdrop. The book of Job is really about the nature of God. It's about who God is as creator and his freedom to act as he sees fit. Let me say that again. The book of Job really is not a book about suffering. It is a book about the nature of God, that he is creator, and he may act as he sees fit. You with me? We just got through 37 chapters, about 10 minutes. <laughs> if you would, flip over to Job chapter 38, please. Job chapter 38. You can read those intervening chapters if you want. They're very poetic. But I've just given you the gist of it. Chapter 38. After all the talking between these men, it is now time for God to speak. Are you there? Verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Please understand, God is irritated. He is ticked. He is mad. <clears throat> Verse 3. Now gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you, and you instruct me. In other words, God has come to them and said, Man up, son. Man up. I, I don't know what you hope to have God ever talk to you when you see him face to face. This ain't it. This ain't it. Not for me. <clears throat> what he's saying is this. Gentlemen, you think you're qualified to judge me? Can we just take a look at that? Can we just make sure you're actually qualified to judge me? And what he will do is he will fire off a series of questions at these men to see if they can answer it. Now, <clears throat> I don't know if you've ever seen this movie, but my cousin Vinny, have you seen this movie? Okay. Uh, if you haven't seen this movie, a lot of language, so not, not a family movie. But this is like one of my top ten movies of all time, really. Uh, come on, two Utes? This is classic stuff. But in the movie, the defense lawyer, played by Joe Pesci, he's looking at a picture and he finally realizes he can crack the case, but he needs an expert witness. And all he has is his girlfriend. So he puts his girlfriend on the stand, and the prosecutor says, whoa, 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 time out. How do we know that she's an expert? And... If you remember the scene, well, you may voir dire the witness if you would like, right? And so he begins answering a uh, asking her a bunch of questions, and she knocks it out of the park, demonstrating her qualification, okay? What is about to happen with God and Job and his friends is God is about to voir dire these three guys, okay? Now listen, before I go any further, I'm sure I've got some legal beagle in here saying, well, that's not actually how it works, blah, 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 that's great. It's just an illustration, okay? Just go with it, Okay. <laughs> <clears throat> Verse 4, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? 
Tell me, if you have understanding, oh, you must read this sarcastically. God is being heavily sarcastic here. Who set its measurements, since you know, or who stretched the line on it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Anybody want to take a shot at these? There's no way. There's no way. <clears throat> Verse 8, or who enclosed the sea of the, with doors when bursting forth it went out from the womb? Anybody? Skip down to verse 19. Where is the way to the dwelling place of the light and darkness? Where is its place? That you may take, to it, uh, take it to its territory and that you may discern the path of its home? Anybody know? You see, science can tell us how things work, but they can't tell us why it was designed that way. Only God can tell us that. Skip down to verse 31. Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades, uh, a star formation, or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth the constellation in season and guide the bear with her satellites? Do you know the ordinances of the heavens or fix their rule over the earth? Can't answer these, can you? These are questions that only God can answer. And what God is saying here is, if you don't even know this, you don't know why the world and the universe was designed the way it was. So how are you going to sit here and judge me? How does that work? Do you see it? Hard questions here. God will go on and on and on asking these questions through the end of chapter 39. And in the end, what he proves beyond the shadow of a doubt is, gentlemen, you are not qualified to judge me. You are not qualified to judge my actions. You are not, you, you just don't have it. We lack the requisite qualification to judge God. God is creator. This is his universe, not ours. He is free to run things in any manner that he sees fit. And that leads us to the key takeaway from the book of Job. The key takeaway, this is God's world and we are his creation. He is free to dispose of our lives in any manner that he sees fit. Let me make sure we get this. This is God's world and we are his creation. And he is free to dispose of our lives in any manner that he sees fit. I want to be careful with this word dispose. A lot of people use dispose like throwing into the garbage can. Okay, I'm using this in a much more expansive way to order, to administer, to bring things into our lives, to guide, to direct, not simply to end something. But it is his world, and he is free to act as he sees fit. The issue of God's goodness and human suffering is an age-old question, and the debate has played out in many different ways. But the fundamental idea is this. How can an all-powerful God be good if he allows all the suffering that we have in the world. And if anybody's watching the news right now, it's not tough to come up with examples of suffering, is it? It's going on like crazy right now. The idea here is either he is not all-powerful, and so he's unable to stop the suffering, or he just isn't good. And I've seen well-meaning Christians tap dance all over this issue, attempting to reconcile God's sovereignty with his goodness. Now, before I continue, can I give you a quick warning? I am a left brain kind of guy. You know the difference between left brain and right brain, right? I am a, sorry, those lights are hot. I'm a left brain kind of guy. I was a philosophy major. I've spent 25 years as a programmer, ones and zeros. I'm all about logic, reason, analytics. <clears throat> I want truth before I want to feel good. I will accept feeling bad so long as I have the truth. I don't want to lie that makes me feel good. And what I'm going to give you right now is a lot of left brain stuff. I've seen a lot of you holding coffee. Glad you had your caffeine, because you're going to need it. <clears throat> this is difficult teaching, and all I'm going to say is, 
don't flinch. Don't flinch. It's not intellectually deep, but it is tough to live out. All right, common approach is to say this. God doesn't cause suffering. He only allows it to happen. Have you heard this? God doesn't cause suffering. He only allows it to happen. This is attempting to distinguish between God's will of permission and his will of desire, what God will allow versus what he wants to happen. Um, I'm sorry, this is just not what the Bible says. It simply is not what the Bible says. I made a point as we were reading that it was God who turned Satan to Job, right? It was God who turned Satan to Job. And then we had this. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, dot, dot, dot. He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to ruin him without cause. Do you see it? God's taking responsibility here. What happened to Job? Job God say, I did that. Yeah, Satan was simply the means by which that happened, but God takes full responsibility. And in case you think maybe I'm just uh, cherry-picking a verse, how about Job 42.11? This is after all of his suffering, everything has been restored to him. Then all his brothers and all his sisters, all those folks who didn't come to him when he was suffering, and all those who had known him before came to him, and they ate bread with him in his house, and they consoled him and comforted him for all of the... The Hebrew word here can be translated as evil, trials, trouble, or adversity that the Lord had brought on him. Do you see it? God took full responsibility for everything that happened to Job. So yes, God did bring all of this suffering into God's life. And by the way, this continues into the New Testament. Ephesians 1.11, God works all things after the counsel of his own will. All things, not some things, not most things, not just the good things, all things. God works all things after the counsel of his own will. Saying that God doesn't cause suffering, he only allows it to happen, is simply incorrect. That is just not what the Bible teaches. Now, in order to continue, there's a mental hurdle we're going to have to overcome, or we're going to have to be able to jump over, okay? And this is a very difficult hurdle, okay? Hang with me, hang with me, because this is hard right now. Remember, I said I want truth, and I don't care how it makes me feel, rather than having a comfortable lie. It's truth time. Hang with me on this one. But this is the hurdle we all need to overcome. And the hurdle is this. God is free to dispose of your life in any manner that he sees fit. No, he does not need your permission. No, he does not owe you an explanation. <clears throat> God is God and we are not. God is the creator and we are his creatures. This is his world, his universe, his creation. And he can do with it as he pleases. And no, we don't always get a say in this one. We don't. We are the creatures he is the creator. Folks have objected to this, saying, well, wait a minute, Tony, hang on. We are moral beings. We can certainly tell right from wrong, and we can see when God is acting in a wrong manner. <clears throat> right? Well, the answer to that is, yes, God gave us morality, but that's so that we, as humans, know how humans are supposed to act towards other humans and towards God. But that does not mean that we have the authority to dictate how God is supposed to act toward us. That's going too far. God is God, and we are not God. And because God is God, he is free to withhold certain actions to himself. For us to engage in certain actions is wrong, but not for God. If you're a parent, you do this all the time with your children, don't you? There are things your children may not do, but you do, right? You do it. Why can't our Heavenly Father do that as well? If I bring suffering into someone's life, is it sinful? Yeah, of course. Why? Because I'm a sinner in need of grace. Of course it's sinful. God is not a sinner in need of grace. When he brings suffering into our lives, 
It is not sinful. It just is not. Next objection. Isn't it hypocritical for God to say, do as I do, uh, do as I say and not as I do? It's fine for me, but not for thee? Isn't that pure hypocrisy? The answer? Uh, sorry, I got to throw an ugly word at you. I know it's Sunday morning. Got to throw a really ugly word at you. That word is anthropomorphism. Anthropomorphism. Sorry, sorry. PhD student. Come on, I got to throw one of these in. <clears throat> An anthropomorphism is ascribing human traits to non-humans. And we need to be careful that we do not ascribe human traits to God. We got to be very careful. Although we are created in his image, we need to be careful about ascribing human traits to God. Doesn't always work. God occupies a completely different role in his creation from us. We are his creation, but he is the creator. As his creation, we don't get the right to tell him how he is supposed to do things. It's his show. He gets to run it as he sees fit. Let me illustrate this if I could, because I think we get this in the workplace, and yet when it comes to God, we sort of get kind of backwards about this. Okay, Dennis, I'm going to pick on you for a second. Say for the sake of argument, Dennis says, you know what, working at church has been great, I've really enjoyed it, but I want to open up a Wawa, okay? Yes, I know, Wawa is a chain, not a franchise, okay, it's just an illustration, just go with it, okay? But he opens up a Wawa, so he puts together the money, he opens up his Wawa, I hope you're a Wawa fan, I am. I would have died years ago if it wasn't for Wawa. And then Dennis does something strange. He says, Tony, do you want to work for me? I say, sure, I'll go work at Wawa, no problem. So we o- he opens a store, we open it up, we're working for about a month or so, and I have a day off. Great. Well, on my day off, I walk into the store, I open up the cash register, I pull out 50 bucks, and I leave, because I need 50 bucks for my day off. Is that okay? Fire. Whoa. <laughs> well, great talking to you, bye. <laughs> right, I'm fired. Why? Not my money. But if right behind me, Dennis comes in, his day off, opens up the cash register, pulls out 50 bucks and leaves. Is that theft? No, it's his money. It's his money. He can do with it as he pleases, right? As the owner, he gets certain rights and uh, responsibilities and privileges that I as an employee don't have. Let me give another example. The next day, I w- because he didn't fire me, the next day I walk in, I've got a can of orange paint, right? Construction cone orange paint. And I go to one of the walls and big old line right on one of the walls. What do we call that? Vandalism. Very good. Well, Dennis takes a look at that and says, that's interesting. He takes the can out of my hand, and he, matching line on the wall. What do we call that? Art. Art. (laughs) Redecorating. Is it vandalism? No. It's the same action on the same wall using the same can of paint. What is the only difference? The person who did it. He's the owner. It's his wall. He can do that. I'm the employee. I don't get that option. I don't have that right. Now, here's the killer. You ready? If he now fires me, he's done the same action. Is it hypocrisy for him to fire me? No. No, it's not. He has the right to do that. I don't. He has the position. It's his stuff, right? Everything in that Wawa is his, not mine. If he wants to burn it to the ground, I mean, yeah, he may have some insurance issues. If he wants to burn it to the ground, it's his business. But if I burn it to the ground, I'm going to jail. Yes, it's not mine. I can't do it that way. And I've lost myself. Ah, good. (laughs) Keep in mind that God is not a human. And any attempt to make God into a human and to hold him to the same human standards is an anthropomorphism. God is God. We are not. 
We are his creation, and he is free to act as he sees fit. Well, Tony, what about Lord Acton's uh, saying, absolute power corrupts absolutely? But it's got to rock absolutely too, you know? Okay. <clears throat> but does not absolute power corrupt absolutely? And my answer to that is, that is yet another anthropomorphism. If you give a human absolute power, absolutely that person is going to get corrupted. But that doesn't mean God will. Let me ask you this. How many of y'all seen these movies? Great movies, right? And if you haven't, seriously, where have you been? Great, great movies. Actually, I spent the first three movies, two and a half of these movies, this guy with the sword, Slider, Strider, whatever his name is, I was like, wash your hair, dude. Please stick your head in a river and wash your... Anyway, okay. But, but the whole movie centers around this, the ring of power, right? This is a ring of absolute power. And the whole series is focused on destroying this ring. Why? Because nobody can wear it. Anybody who wears it gets corrupted by it, and they need to destroy this thing because nobody, no creature, can handle it. <clears throat> but God is not a creature that he would be corrupted by absolute power. To think that he would be is to ascribe to God the weakness and frailty of humanity. God is God, and he can handle absolute power. Okay, is it me? Or does this ring of absolute power that causes such destruction look like a wedding ring with an inscription? <laughs> Nothing to see here either, folks. We're just going to keep going along. <clears throat> Final objection. If God has all power, doesn't that mean he is a dictator or an absolute monarch? That there's no limit to what he could do? Yes. That's exactly right. Yes. I mean, there are a few logical contradictions he can't do, but yes. God is free to do anything he desires. God certainly occupies a position of total authority. Listen, if you only had yourself to answer to, would you be corrupted by it? Absolutely. I don't even need to ask the question. Of course you would. But God is not a human, and he can handle absolute power. So the question becomes this. How then do we know that God will not act arbitrarily? How do we know that God is not going to throw away, lives away on something that is meaningless and dumb. How do we know that? Because in the end, all we have are God's promises. Take a look at God's promises. Hebrews 13, 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and yes, forever. He's not arbitrary. He doesn't act on whims. He's the same. There's a constancy that, uh, about God. Ephesians 1.11, we've already seen this. God works all things after the counsel of his own will. Not some things, not most things, not the good things, just the good things, but all things. That God considers everything that he does. He does not act on a whim. He does not lash out in anger or anything like that. He acts deliberately. And then finally, Jeremiah 29.11, For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Look, when God acts, he's acting for his people to give them hope, to say, look, I love you, and I'm moving all of history to a conclusion. It may not be that you're going to have health, wealth, and prosperity in this life. He is moving all of history to the conclusion, his conclusion, when he will return and he will set all of this stuff straight. And all of the suffering that people have gone through, God will set this straight. And in the meantime, God is moving all of history in that, uh, in that direction. Do you see it? That doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to turn out well for you. That doesn't mean that you will necessarily be able to fulfill all your dreams. 
What it means is that God is moving all of history to a conclusion, and when we get there, he will set everything straight. And in the new heaven, the new earth, we will have plenty of time, read eternity, to go live out all of our dreams. All you have in the end are God's promises. That's it. When it comes to the issue of God acting arbitrarily, all you have are God's promises. Either they are good enough for you or they are not. Either you believe them or you do not. Either you trust him or you do not. That's it. That's all you have in this life are God's promises. And it is exactly on that point where God says, try me, try me. Psalm 34, 8, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. God is saying, try me, come, see that I am good. 1 Thessalonians 4.13, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as do the rest of those, uh, as, uh, as the rest who have no hope. Even when life gets bad, as Christians, we know history is going to a particular conclusion. No matter how bad your suffering is now, no matter how bad your illness is now, history is moving to a definite conclusion I don't know if you remember, but the uh, last few years of uh, Pope John Paul II's papacy, that guy was looking kind of rough. What what was it he suffered from? Cerebral palsy or? uh, Parkinson's. Parkinson's, that's what it was. The cardinals went to him and said, you know, Pope, we need to close the doors on this. This is looking bad. And to his great credit, Pope John Paul II said, absolutely not. He said, the world needs to see what Christian suffering looks like. They need to see that we suffer differently, that we suffer as people who have hope. And he refused to let him close the door on them. And I tell you what, Pope John Paul II, on that moment, he hit the nail right on the head because that's exactly what the world needs to see. The world needs to see that we suffer knowing that in the end, Christ returns and he will set all of this straight. May not be in the moment, but he will set it straight one day. Many people will suffer. Many Christians will suffer and they will even die. But in the end, it will get set straight. May not be now, but one day it will be. So when suffering comes into your life, there is purpose to it. God is not acting arbitrarily. There is a reason for it. It is part of him moving history to his conclusion when he will make right all the suffering that we have gone through. However, between now and then, God is under no obligation to tell you how your suffering fits into his design. Oftentimes when we suffer, we are going to be left going, what was that about? What was that about? Can I go five over? What I'd like to do, I want to give you four reasons why we suffer. Four reasons why we suffer. I'm going to start with the least likely reason, go to the most likely. I'm going to move very quickly here. The first reason is punishment. The Bible talks about this. Sometimes when we sin greatly, God punishes us. The Bible does say it. Job's friends were not entirely wrong. Excuse me. However, let me also say this is rare. This is rare. If you're suffering and you've got to think for more than a nanosecond what you're suffering about, this ain't it. This ain't it. This is not God's first option. There is something in your life that God's been after you, after you, after you, after you, after you about, and he's finally said, okay, we can't do it the easy way. We'll do it the hard way. But if that's the suffering you're going through, let me give you a little encouragement, and that is, as parents, we know it is tough to discipline well, and God is disciplining you because he loves you. He is not done with you, and he will not let you stay in that sin. 
The second reason we suffer is preparation. God is preparing you. I don't know why it is, but throughout the history of the church, the people that God has used, has used greatly are the people who have suffered greatly first. I don't know why that is. We tend to send people to seminary to prepare them for ministry, but God spells seminary, S-U-F-F-E-R-I-N-G. I don't know why that is, but it is. And so if that's what you're suffering for, let me give you a little encouragement. The obvious, God ain't done with you yet, not by a long shot. The third reason we suffer is to reach other people. The world needs to see what Christian suffering looks like. Maybe God wants to use your suffering to reach somebody else. And it is in the depth of your suffering that they see that as Christians, we suffer differently. And God is going to use that to reach somebody else. And if that's the case, my encouragement to you, God ain't done with you yet. And by the way, is the price of your suffering a good deal for the eternity of that person? That's a good deal. That's a good deal. And then the final reason we suffer... The earth is cursed. After Adam and Eve fell, God cursed the earth. We can look at how a life on earth is supposed to go, and it just doesn't go that way, does it? It just doesn't. In other words, we see how nature is supposed to work, but it doesn't. We see how relationships are supposed to work. They don't. We see how, say, government is supposed to work. It doesn't. We see how the economy is supposed to work. It doesn't. Nothing really works the way it's supposed to. We see it. It just doesn't work that way, and that is the curse. That is the curse that God put on this earth because God wants us to understand our helplessness and our desperate need for his grace. And so if that is what you're suffering from, let me say this. God is maturing you right now. He is maturing you so that you can rest in him. When the world is in chaos, you can know that he truly is enough. He is all you need, and more importantly, you can show it to somebody else. But those are the reasons that we suffer. The bottom line here is that God is not arbitrary and capricious. His promise is that he is working all things towards his conclusion, and one day Christ will return and set all the suffering that we have gone through straight. God does not enjoy bringing suffering into anybody's life. However, your suffering, like Christ's suffering, may be necessary as he moves history to his conclusion. I want you to grab hold of this truth. God is moving history to his conclusion, so when you suffer, you are simply part of that. He is moving to his conclusion, and he will set your suffering straight one day. One day. You may not know the purpose of your suffering in this life. You may not even know it in the next, but you need to know it is still part of God's plan. Now, everything I've just said to you is not theory to me. None of this is theory. I told you that I started going down this path when my, when my wife, Lori, was diagnosed with cancer. Well, on December 2nd, 2019, Lori lost her battle with cancer. And I was left asking the question, why did Lori suffer and die? I don't know. I don't know. I think it was mostly the fourth reason, the earth is cursed, although a lot of people were positively impacted by her illness. But I don't know. Two and a half years later, I have no answer. The reality is that some of us will suffer and we will not survive it. You need to grab hold of this truth. God is free to dispose of your life in any manner that he sees fit. No, he does not need your permission, and no, he does not owe you an explanation. I remember when it was clear, when it was clear that Lori was not going to make it. Lori had this dismissive wave of the hand, okay? I'm done with this, whatever it was. I hated when she used that on me, too, like, get out of here. <laughs> but she did this little dismissive wave of the hand, and she said, this life is only the beginning, this life is only the beginning. I thought, wow, that's kind of profound. 
In fact, it's so profound, you really can't see it, but the red circle down there, I actually had it put on the grave marker. Um, I, I just, I, I thought she nailed it. <clears throat> the great hope of every Christian is that one day in the future, all the suffering will be made right. Our Lord and Savior will return and set everything right. And all the Christians who have suffered and died will be resurrected to new life and to eternal life. 10,000 years from now, nobody is going to shake their fist at God and say, how could you bring that suffering into my life? Instead, we will be like the old hymn, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise as when we'd first begun. I want to close reading just a little bit out of Revelation. This is our great hope as Christians. Chapter 21, you don't need to follow along, just listen. Or you don't need to turn your Bibles, just listen. And I saw a new heaven and new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. Sea is a, um, a metaphor for judgment. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he shall dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be among them. Do you look forward to it? And he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall no longer be any death. There shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. Chapter 22, verse 1. And he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. The river of life is a metaphor for the Holy Spirit. In the middle of the street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall no longer be any curse. And the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his bondservants shall serve him. Skip down to verse 12. Behold, Jesus talking, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. And then finally, verse 20. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Look, the suffering we experience today probably doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I know Lori's suffering and death makes absolutely no sense to me. I have two friends here. Don, sir, I don't know why Carolyn suffered and died. I don't. Sharon, I don't know why Steve suffered and died. I just don't. For those of you who have lost people, I'm sorry. I don't know. I don't have that answer. But I do know that their suffering and death somehow, some way, was part of God moving history to his conclusion. And as hard as this can be, it is the only thing we have, his promise. Either it's good enough for you or it's not. And until then, all we can do is say with the saints who have gone before us, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I do not understand what you are about. I make no bones about that. But I know you're coming again. I know you will return. And one day you will set this straight. I don't understand. I just don't. But Father, until then, may we rest in you and trust in you. May we look forward to that day, the great getting up day, when you will return and you will set all of this straight. Until then, Lord, will you let Lori know that I love her and I miss her. For Carolyn, for Steve, and for all of us who have lost people, let them know we love them and we miss them. We look forward to seeing them again. Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen. Thank you.